And we pray that the same would be true in our own life as we seek to please You in every respect. And although we have uh, had some patches in our own lives where we have disobeyed You or we haven't submitted fully to You, we pray that this time of the year would be a time of renewal for us as well and that our hearts would be uh, transformed and changed into your uh, into the image of Jesus Christ our savior and we're thankful for your word and how it works to do that in us uh, slowly but surely and we pray that you'd help us to be uh, complicit in that way allow, allow the word to change us that we would do everything that we can to cultivate that growth and then allow you to bring on the results and we pray that through it all that we would give glory to you and praise to you because of what you've done. And we pray that you'd help us to help each other in this way as well. That we would be encouraging one another day after day as long as it's called today. And we pray that your grace would be upon us as we study through these uh, two books this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Jonah's mentioned in Second Kings chapter 14, verse 25, and so we can place him around the time of Jeroboam the second king of Israel, and uh, so this puts him around 780 B.C. So we're still about 80 years before the captivity of Israel, uh, and so Jonah is is um, is writing during those times or prophesying during those times. What's different about Jonah is that he's actually preaching to a foreign nation. Most of the time what you'll find in the prophets is that they're going to be either preaching to the northern kingdom of Israel or the southern kingdom of Judah. But, but Jonah is actually called to, to preach to a foreign nation. And what's interesting about that is that it teaches us that God is not just the God of Israel. And aren't we thankful for that even today? That God is not just the God of Israel. He's the God of all people. And, um, and so he shows Jonah that that is the case. That Israel, you are not only my special people, but you're my, my people who are going to spread my word throughout the whole world, even to your enemies. And uh, so Jonah preaches to the Assyrians, and, and Nineveh is really the capital of Assyria at this time. And Assyria is in the eyes of Israel a wicked nation. There's a uh, monument that's in the... I think it's in the British Museum, some some, some uh, museum there, over there in London. And uh, it's a six-foot black obelisk. You ever heard of this? It's a, bi- it's a big uh, monument that's, that's made up. And uh, it's, it was designed by Assyria, and it's the original version of it. And, and it's basically full of all these different panels of uh, different kind of pictures of what kind of things were going on at the time. And one of the panels on it is King Jehu of Israel, which was a contemporary of Jonah, King Jehu of Israel bowing down and kissing the feet of the Assyrian king, uh, Shalmaneser III. And for Israel, you can just you can just feel the, the frustration or the, the animosity that they have towards these Assyrians. The, the fact that an Israelite king, okay, a theocratic king, would bow down to an Assyrian king was just repulsive to them. 
And so this really helps us set the stage for what, what Jonah is feeling in this book. Why he's so frustrated. Why he hates these people so much. And what we're going to see is that this book is not really about a fish. The fish really only covers about four verses. He's only mentioned four times, I think, in the, in the entire book. Now, uh, all of chapter 2 is talking about Jonah in the fish, but, but really this is not a story about a fish. And um, it's not a story about Jonah. It's, it's really a story about God. And uh, so what we're going to see is that, as you see there in your theme, is that God is merciful to the disobedient. He's merciful to the disobedient believer, chapters 1 and 2, and then He's di- merciful to the disobedient nation, chapters 3 and 4. All right. So there's an outline for you on the back of your handout for your personal um, for your personal study as you go through the book. It's basically broken down into four chapters. Well, you most of you know the story of Jonah, but what happens is he's commanded by God to go and preach to Nineveh, these wicked people. And Jonah instead gets in a boat and heads the opposite direction towards Tarshish. Storm comes up. The sailors uh, begin throwing things out of the boat. And um, and then, uh, of course, Jonah is sent overboard and swallowed by a fish. And um, what we need to think about, first of all, is what kind of a story is this? In other words, what type of literature are we looking at? We said when we were looking at our study of how to study the Bible that the the literature is very important. What type of literature we're looking at is very important for our understanding of what we're reading and how it applies to us. So the very first thing that we need to do before we can apply something to us is we need to understand the meaning. And the meaning is found in the text. And the text is often... Um, the, the meaning of the text is often determined based on the type of literature. So... Some people would say that's an allegory. An allegory is basically an extended parable. Um, and they would say that this represents, this story of Jonah really represents the spiritual pilgrimage of every Christian so that they go through a time of rebellion and then they get pulled back by God and, and He brings them back to Himself. Others say that it's a simple parable that it's uh, more specific than an allegory where Jonah really represents the nation of Israel and their wandering from God and His bringing them back. Other people say that it's a midrash, which is an illustrative commentary on another part of the Bible. So basically, all that it is is, is a way to explain Exodus 34.6, that God is merciful and slow to anger, abounding in love, which is a verse we'll find in this, in this book. And so basically all that a midrash is is it's explaining that text. Let me show you how that works and I'll give you a story or a fable even to explain it. Others just say that it's a flat out myth that it's true only by primitive people or, or true only to primitive people but but not not accepted by the the mass. And so really it's just a story that's a superstitious type thing. It, it could never happen. And then finally, there are those who believe that it's true history. And um, basically, um, there's, they would say that there's no reason that, that we would take it any other way, that, that it is real history, that 
It's not simply a made-up story. The reason that a lot of people put this aside as a parable or an allegory or myth is because they can't accept what's going on in the passage. The fact that a fish that large would come and spare a man and save him for three days and then spit him back out on land right near where he needs to be back and preaching um, it's just it's just utterly uh, nearly impossible to to believe so how could we possibly believe that and the problem with that sort of thinking is is those types of people don't accept miracles as truth and that's exactly the point here is that this is a miracle that's happened you don't hear about these this type of thing happening in the way that it happened because it is a miracle and we will see God's sovereignty over all these things throughout this uh, passage. So how should we understand the story? Um, can someone read? Well, you know what? Let's all turn to Matthew chapter 20 because the best commentary on the Old Testament is often found in the New Testament. And here Jesus talks about the story of Jonah. I'm sorry, I meant chapter 12. Thank you. Matthew chapter 12. <laughs> Matthew chapter 12. We'll begin reading in verse 40. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So Jesus is saying that Jonah's story really points forward to his story. That just like Jesus was, or just like Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days, so was Jesus in the heart of the earth. And so he's saying that that's a typology. That's that's a uh, Jonah was at that time a type that pointed forward to me in a way. He pointed forward to me in, in, in the pattern of being, um, being uh, secluded there for three days. And so what Jesus is saying really is that this is history. That's why he says at the beginning of verse 40, as Jonah was. Okay? So Jesus is saying that his resurrection is just like Jonah's experience in the sense that he was um, he was held there for three days, and that he was uh, you see the points of comparison there that Jonah was in the belly of the sea monster, and the Son of Man was in the heart of the earth. So the two things that he's comparing there are the days and the place, and um, so. We cannot take the story of Jonah as an allegory. We cannot take it as a parable. We cannot take it as a midrash or a myth. We have to take it as Jesus took it, as a true historical event. So, the point of all this is that we will not understand Jonah's point in the book if we don't understand the literary type, the type of literature that we're reading. And so, by reading from Jesus, he says that it is true history and that it points forward to my work or my resurrection. And um, if you can believe in the resurrection, then you certainly should be able to believe in the story of Jonah. 
turn back to Jonah. And as you do, do you have any questions on what we talked about so far or comments? Mark? Yep. Um, I think they'll stand up as witnesses, not as. Yeah. Yeah. If you think about it as a courtroom, God or Jesus Christ has been given the power to be the judge, and then, um, and then he he calls the world as witnesses, believers and un- unbelievers to testify against people and their sin. And uh, even even the creation, I'm trying to think of the passage where it talks about that, but even the creation as a whole points to God and and our responsibility to respond to Him. Yeah. Yeah, I think it will be in the sense that shame on you if even the Ninevites could have repented, how could you not have with Jesus Christ being here in flesh and with all the previous revelation? That's why to whom much has been given, much it will be required. Those of us who have a great deal of revelation need to do something with it. We need to respond to it. Um, people like this in Nineveh get get the one chance and they repent quickly. Um, that doesn't always happen that way. But Another question or comment? It's a good point. Alright, Jonah chapter 1 is really about God's sovereignty over nature. If you uh, look through this, you see how God orchestrates all the events in the boat here and in the storm. He brings the storm and then He brings the fish at the very end of the chapter. Um, And God saves him from this this earthly trouble that he has. Verse 4, the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea and there was a great storm on the sea so that the ship was about to break up. So it is God who causes the storm to come on the sea. And then, uh, so, so the sailors trying to figure out what's going on, um, we read in verses 6 through 9 that so the captain approached him, Jonah, and said, How is it that you're sleeping? Get up and call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. Each man said to his mate, Come, let us cast lots so that we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? What, What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. So even in the casting of lots, God is is sovereignly in control. It says in verse 7, they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. That was God um, doing that. I think Proverbs chapter 15 talks about that. That the, the lot is cast, but its every decision belongs to the Lord. Everything that happens in the universe is controlled by a sovereign God. And then even Jonah recognizes this at the end of verse 9. I am the one who fears the God of heaven and the one who made this sea that's causing this storm. 
And so we see that the sailors are saved from the storm uh, that threatened to, the, to destroy the boat. And it's interesting to think that in Mark chapter 4, verse 41, Jesus also calmed a storm. And the disciples react the same way that the, sail, the sailors did. The sailors respond by giving fear to both Jonah and his God. And in Mark 4:41 we read that they were terrified, the disciples were terrified and asked each other, who is this? That even the winds and the waves obey Him. So, if we think about both of these passages together, what what kind of conclusion should we come to? Okay, that God is in control, but specifically with regard to Jesus. That if God is the one who calms the storm, and in the in the boat with the disciples, Jesus is the one who calms the storm. Then Jesus is God. See, Jesus uh, has power over creation, just as God is. God has because Jesus has come in human flesh as God. Trish. Yeah. 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 Jonah, wrong type of piece. <laughs> he was uh, running from God and didn't care about the city and he cared less what happened. In fact, he, he wanted to die. He, he um, asked them to throw, them over, throw him over the side, not knowing that there would be a fish there to rescue him. So he basically felt like, I'm ready to die. I'd rather die than see these people repent. Mark? Oh, yeah. Yep, and we'll see this later. He he mentions this a couple more times. I'm ready to die in chapter four when we get there. Notice God's sovereignty over nature in verse 17. <clears throat> okay, so He brings the storm. He He makes the lot fall on Jonah. He stops the storm. Verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. So. It's it's God who appoints the fish and then God who commands the fish to be spit up on dry land. Chapter 2, verse 10. Then the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah up onto dry land. And Jonah even sees his situation as being from the very hand of God. Look up to verse 3 of chapter 2. For you had cast me into the deep. You, capital Y there, referring to God. For you had cast me into into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me, and your breakers, your breakers and billows passed over me. And in it, he knows that God's purpose is to save. Look at verse 9. But I will sacrifice to you, Jonah, Jonah promises, with the voice of thanksgiving, that which I have vowed I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. And that really points us to the, to the theme of the book that God is a merciful God. He's merciful to Jonah. He's trying to show Jonah that I have been merciful merciful to you, Jonah, and therefore you should not question me when I am merciful to these wicked people because you are no different than them apart from my grace. In chapter 3, Jonah finally gets around to preaching to the Ninevites. They repent. God spares them. And we see God's mercy there as well. Then in chapter 4, we have the climax of the book. And it drives home the theological message. Now, ironically, 
chapter 4 is often neglected in the teaching of Jonah. We often teach the first three chapters of Jonah. And if we skip chapter 4, we wouldn't really understand why Jonah was so adamant about going to Nineveh or against going to Nineveh. Why wouldn't he go? We we often think just by nature that it's because, well, he was probably scared of how they would treat him. Remember, Israel was a serious enemy. Maybe he was afraid of what would happen to him. But chapter 4 is really important to our understanding of the entire book. If we stopped at chapter 3, we would think that the theme of Jonah is that God rescues those who, who stray from Him. We would, If we stopped at the end of chapter 3, we'd say, wow, what a great God He rescues His the people who stray from Him. But, but there's a, a deeper point than that. And that's where we find in chapter 4 that God wants His heart in line with ours. That He wants us to be merciful like He is merciful. And so He's teaching us that, that we need to be merciful like He is. So let's look at the first few verses of chapter 4. Jonah 4, verse 1. But it greatly displeased Jonah, that is, when they repented, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are gracious and a compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life, for death is better to me than life. Isn't that amazing? We find out here why Jonah fled, why he left God. He did it because he knew that when he preached, God would spare them if they repented. And he didn't want to see that. These people were wicked and they deserved God's wrath. They deserved God's judgment. So, too bad for them. This is exactly why I didn't go. What he was afraid of was not how they would treat him. He was afraid of God's mercy being poured upon them. And he knew exactly what he quoted here from Exodus 34.6. And that's at the end of verse 2. That you, God, are a gracious and a compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Jonah understood that no matter how corrupt the Ninevites were, that if given an opportunity, God would be merciful to them. And so what we learn here is that nobody can stop God's mercy. When God wants to pour out His mercy on someone or some group of people, no one can stop Him. It will happen. God will have mercy on whom He will have mercy. In verses 5-8, through we read about the pity party Jonah throws for himself and about God's continual providence over nature. He, again, appoints something. before. First, He pointed a fish. He pointed a storm appointed a fish, and here he points a plant to come up, take, give shade to Jonah, and Job, then, it, then, it, then God curses it and it dies the next day, and Jonah um, is frustrated again and wants to die again. The point of all of it really is found in the last three verses. Verse 9, Then God said to Jonah, Do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? 
And he said, I have good reason to be angry even to death. Then the Lord said, You had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand, as well as many animals? The story is meant to show Jonah how zealous he ought to be for God's mercy. To be a part of God's people is to be uh, is to be zealous for God's mercy. Now, before I take some questions as we finish this study, let me ask you a question. If God is sovereign in salvation, and I've suggested that He is, if He will accomplish what He plans to have accomplished, if He will have mercy on whom He has mercy, then what difference does it make whether I evangelize my neighbor or not? Does it really matter if I go out to the mission field? I mean, if God's going to save them, does He really need us? What do you think? Jared? Right. So, God can miraculously work in people's lives. It has to come through His Word, though. Uh, that's the, the means by which... And I think that's what Jared's pointing to, is the means by which He will accomplish His purpose is through us. Okay, For, for Jonah, it's through Jonah, but for us, we need to evangelize because God will accomplish it through us. Bill? Same thing. The mean. Alright, anyone else have any other ideas? That's... That's correct, but there there's more. Okay. Okay. What kind of benefit could there be from right? All right. I want to withhold comment on that because uh, I want to come back to that. Trish? Right. Good. 
Any other thoughts? Okay, obviously um, we know that through evangelism, God is glorified and uh, He displays His grace through us. Um, there's an issue of obedience like we've mentioned. Um, but the one that I want to focus on, I think maybe is at the center of what we're learning here today, is that the main reason that God wants to include us in evangelism is because He wants to change our hearts in line with His. And He wants us to be merciful as He is merciful. That's why He takes Jonah through this whole thing even after the fact. Jonah's sitting there on the hill looking over Nineveh, hoping that Nineveh doesn't actually repent in the 40 days that they had left. And and then maybe this fire and brimstone would come down on them and Jonah would get to witness it. And while he's doing that, that's when the plant comes up and then it dies. And he's just the time's probably run out and he's just so frustrated. And God at this point takes Jonah aside and says, listen, you need to be merciful. If they were willing to repent, then why should I not save them? Isn't that this exactly what I did to you, Jonah, in the belly of the fish? You had been obstinate against me and I could have let you die, but instead I saved you. I protected your life. And so... I would say that the practice of evangelism, that doing evangelism, and this goes back to what both Jared and Trish said, and that is that doing evangelism is helpful for believers, not just unbelievers. The practice of it actually changes our hearts. It changes how we think. And that's what God wants. He wants people who are big-hearted, loving caring, sacrificing, like Trish mentioned, compassionate towards the lost. People who are in a dark world and opposed to a holy God. And so, maybe a practical point of application is if you are... uh, if you uh, really don't like someone or you feel like they do deserve God's judgment, then try sharing the Gospel with them it will change the way that you think about them. Try praying for them to see the glory of, of God. And um, and as we do that, um, we we get more of an eternal perspective rather than a, a temporal perspective. Okay, I'm all set. I'm following God. But, but they, they'll never get it. And um, God wants us to have mercy like He has had mercy on them. And... If you want to write down another verse, Exodus 23, 9. Moses telling the people there, or I think God's telling the people there, that they need to be um, willing to be kind to strangers because they should understand what being a stranger was all about. Mark? Right.
Yeah. Yeah, and and we really need to um, to get an understanding for how we are viewed before God ourselves and how we were viewed, and that's why places like Ephesians two and uh, Titus chapter three talk about our former condition before Christ saved us. And when we do, we start to recognize how they are and how we're really no different than any pagan out there except for the grace of God. And praise God for His grace. May may God pour it out upon all those people around us who haven't had the opportunity to hear or respond. All right. Now, your turn for questions on Jonah. We have some time for that. Yeah, he's not concerned about their eternal condition necessarily because they don't have souls. Um, but he, I think the point he's making there is that you were concerned about a plant. Should I not be concerned about these people and these animals? Which, in the, the order of creation, animals are more important than plants. So, so this is how myopic your view is, Jonah. This is how what I'm looking at. I'm looking at the bigger picture. And so he throws in... Even, Almost as an insult to him is what I would say, but yes, he does care for animals, and I do think animals will be a part of the millennial kingdom and potentially the eternal state. Um, and uh, there's not a whole lot of proof for the eternal state part of it, but we do know that there there will be some of the millennium. The lion laying with the lamb, and yeah. and you have of course horses in battle, um, so. If you take those literally, then they would be real horses at the end of, of the, um, at least at the end of the tribulation, and then into the eternal state. So, um, yeah. So good observation. Anybody else? All right. We got five, ten minutes to go through Micah. Um, Micah is the latest of the minor prophets that we have studied. Um, he's prophesying around 735 B.C., about the same time as Isaiah. And he's prophesying to both the northern and the southern kingdom, and he's telling them that that judgment is imminent. And so the, the theme of the book really works out pretty nicely with the structure of it, and that is that judgment is coming, chapters 1 and 2, but a remnant will be saved, so repent and be saved. And so, even though in the captivity, the exile, Israel will be lost, not all hope will be lost because God would restore um, His grace to Israel. And really, even in the act of judgment here, there is grace that God is actually purifying a people for His own namesake. The remnant, you've probably heard that term before, and uh, that means those who those who are left, the small few that are left. And specifically what you're going to find in the book of Micah, which we won't have time to look at, is that the remnant is are, are made up of those who repent. It is those who repent. And it's, it's as simple as that. People who repent will be a part of God's remnant, the ones whom He will save. 
chapters 1 and 2, you see that judgment is coming. And so you see that most of the chapter is a rehearsal of Israel's sin, sin, like much of the prophets do this. They talk about their sin and then the fact that judgment's coming, then that God will restore those who repent, and then uh, you see the grace of God at the end. Here we see that judgment is coming, but before Micah's done with mentioning this judgment, he, um, he flashes a little bit to the future in chapter 2, verse 12. Micah chapter 2, verse 12. I will surely assemble all of you, Jacob. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together like sheep in the fold, like a flock in the midst of its pasture. They will be noisy with men. The breaker goes up before them. They break out, pass through the gate, and go out by it. So their king goes on before them. Again, what we're seeing here is that God has always had a plan, not just for the the people of Israel, but for the Gentiles as well. Um, actually, we'll see that a little bit more clearly in chapter four. But but even though that God is planning to judge them for their sin, particularly the ones that have turned from Him, He will return this small group of people who repent and lead them through a king. And um, and this really points us forward to the end of the millennium. And that's why he says in verse 13, the breaker breaks out before you, the king, the Lord. And uh, I believe that that ultimately refers to Jesus Christ. So judgment is coming, but God is merciful. Chapters th- 3 through 5, a remnant will be saved. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. We see God's... Uh, the scope of God's mercy, that it's not just on Israel. And it will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and the peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us about His ways and that we may walk in His paths. For from Zion will go forth the law, even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem." See there in verse 2 that many nations will say this. God's purpose is not just designed for His special people Israel. It is designed for all the nations. And um, and we have that promise today in Romans chapter 10, verses 12 and 13, that there is no difference between Jew or Gentile. The same Lord is the Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on Him for whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It doesn't say whoever is of Jewish race, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Um, turn to chapter 5. Here we see um, this is uh, pointing towards the conquest of Israel, but not all is lost because verse 2 says, But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth from for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. How would it happen that Israel would be restored? If they were going to be sent into captivity, into exile, how would they be restored? Well, the final restoration would come through the Davidic line being renewed that it would continue to its former way of glory. And according to verse 2, that it would come through one who will go forth for God to be ruler in Israel. 
And at the end of the verse, we find out what type of person this is. This isn't just some some person that comes through the the descendancy of David. He's something much more than that. He's both man and God. And that's why it says His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. That is, He's always been around, but He will be the one that will be born into the line of King David. So, if God is going to spare those who repent, those who are the remnant, then the point of the book is chapter 6 and 7, then repent and be saved. If judgment is coming and God's going to spare those who repent, then chapter 6 and 7, repent and be saved. It's as simple as that. And so we go back to a courtroom setting like we've seen in other prophets, particularly the second half of Isaiah. And these chapters go to define who the remnant are. And if they repent, then God will save them. And the book ends with these great words of comfort in the last chapter. Verse 18, Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of His possession? He does not retain His anger forever because He delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, He will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. It will give truth to Jacob and unchanging love to Abraham, which you swore to our forefathers from the days of old. The emphasis is on the people's sin and that, that really the problem was not Assyria and their enemies. The problem was their own sin. And it is God who comes to save them from their own sin, which is ultimately the problem, not their enemies. So, a couple points of application um, that if judgment is coming, we ought to recognize that not only do we need to consider our own situation, our own standing before God when that judgment comes, but we also need to help other people recognize that as well. That uh, Turn to Hebrews chapter 3. We need to recognize that that we need to continue on in this race that we have been running. We cannot give up. And what you'll find in the New Testament a lot in Hebrews is is you'll find a lot of warnings. And we should take these warnings very seriously that this judgment is real and that no one will be able to stand against God's wrath. The problem for us a lot of times is we, particularly when we understand salvation correctly, we understand the the doctrine of um, God's um, God's sovereignty over salvation, His eternal security that once saved, always saved. And that is true, that once a person, once God saves a person, they don't become unsaved. They always remain part of His family. But we would be better to think of it in different terms. We'd be better to think of eternal security as those who are truly saved will persevere to the end in faith. Okay, We focus on the once saved, always saved. So if I've been saved, I'm all set. I'm just going to leave it at that. 
But how we should focus on it is if God has saved us, then we will continue on all the way till the end. And that's what we should be focusing on. And these warnings should help point us to the fact that we need to continue to persevere. Look at Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. Take care, brethren, that there not be any in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Okay, That doesn't mean we work our way to heaven. That if we persevere to the end, then God saves us at the very end. But the point here is that if God has saved us, we will persevere to the end. And so, the point of Hebrews, uh, one of the points of Hebrews is persevere to the end. Continue to confess your sins and recognize your condition before God and don't give up in the race. Don't ever become complacent. Eternal security, when we think of it in the terms that one saved always saves, often what it does is, is it leads us to complacency or fatalism, which is the idea that you know whatever happens, happens. You know, God's got it all under control. I'm saved. I'm okay. No, we should want to persevere on to the end because we know that those are the ones whom God has truly saved. And um, what you'll notice in this text and others in Hebrews is the constant need of, of, of community that we can't do this on our own, that encourage one another as long as it's called today, that we need to help each other in this we see someone start to slip or fall away. They're, they're, they haven't been here in a while. They don't seem like they're obeying God. They may be here every week, but they're not uh, continuing in righteousness or growing in righteousness. We need to come alongside them and help them out in whatever way we can. All right. Any questions? Mark? Yeah. I think that's just a uh, poetic way of saying every single day. Yeah. As long as it's called today. So which day is called today? Right? Today is called today. Tomorrow's going to be called today when we get there. Yeah. Poetic thing. Yep. Right. Yep. All right. Any questions on Jonah or Micah or comments? Okay. Well, we've made it halfway through the minor prophets. There are 12, and we've made it through six. So hope that you've seen so far God's holiness and His concern to help us to see our our need to be merciful to other people as well. Not just uh, rest on our laurels, but to be willing to step out and, and um, be reproached for the name of Christ. Because uh, someone did that in our own lives. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for these two... Uh, books that help us to see Your glory even better than we had before. Thank You for Your mercy and how You are slow to anger and abounding in love. You gave us so much time to repent. You could have righteously and justly punished us to an eternal hell uh, at the very first whiff of a sin. But instead, You gave us time. You were merciful with us. You allowed us to turn from our sins after having heard the glory of the Gospel. We pray that You would give people around us 
equally or even more time than we've had so that they can also receive Your mercy. We want to see Your mercy poured out on other people as well. We pray that we be actively engaged in the uh, activity of evangelism, that we would be looking out for opportunities within our own circles of influence and within our own relationships and even trying to extend those relationships to, to greater ways, to greater places, so that we can see Your glory um, uh, extend to the farthest reaches of the earth. And we look forward to that day when in glory we will be able to praise You as a people from every tribe, kindred, tongue, and nation. Because You are the God, not just of the Jews, but of all people. And we praise You for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Could you see me like one? I didn't want to interrupt your class, and if it won't uh, get you thinking, mess up your.